Lewis. Come on, Chris. Good morning, am I on? Yeah. I was going to jump up on the stage, but when you're this heavy, that could be entertainment. Guys doing good? Thanks, Scott. Wow. Wasn't Bill amazing? Thank you so much, Scott. Bless you. Well, we're going to have a good time today. I hope that you like to have fun. How many of you know serious is not a fruit of the Spirit? <laughs> That's a revelation for a bunch of you right there. Yep. There it is right there. Let's get her done. It's funny how we've changed, how, how we've redefined what it is to be spiritual, huh? We have a... Uh, we have a uh, a um, something. We have it though, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Do you get that? We have a prophetic conference every year and sometimes, sometimes prophetic people, you know, they want to be spiritual. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So they got the staff and the look. You got to have the look. <laughs> I'm not talking about like staff, like people who work for you. I'm talking about like one you carry. I'm not sure what we're doing with the staff, like we're living on pavement, but, well, whatever. Okay, so you didn't get that, but, yep. Well, um, for those of you that don't, how many of you have never, you never, have never seen me live before? Well, let's pray that you do this time. <laughs> I've been in your presence before, but you weren't live. Well, um, my wife, we, we got to do the American Baptist Convention last week, which is, those guys were on fire, man. They were totally getting rocked. We did it last year, and they invited us back, which is kind of cool. A bunch of those guys are, uh, it's kind of funny because about maybe a hundred of those people that are in the ba- were in the Baptist Convention are pastors, and Probably half of those guys have a degree in theology. No, they all have a degree in theology, but they, uh, several of them are Greek scholars. So the first night, <laughs> thankfully, the, uh, the guy who invited me, Clay, he didn't tell me that until I finished my first message. They were wowed by my insight into Greek and Hebrew. Because <laughs> I went to What's the Matter You? Got a degree in hammerology. So, well, I didn't get to introduce my wife because she ended up flying home from the Baptist convention. She chose that over you. I was very sad. But I'm glad she got home because I got one of those iPhones last night. She waited in line for me. For hours. I text messaged her. I said, forget it. She said, you're worth it. So... 
Well, to know me is to love me. I've been married 31 years. Met my wife when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. I'm serious. Got engaged when she was 13. Got married when she was 17. I have four children. All of them are in full-time ministry. All, all but my oldest in full-time ministry with four children. Well, actually, all but my oldest is. You know, how many of you know that as soon as you receive Jesus, you're in full-time ministry? Yeah. I mean, you may, you may be bad at it, but you were in it. <laughs> but three of my children figured out a way to get paid for it. And I have seven grandchildren. We have the video of them. Videos of those out there. You'd want to buy those, I'm sure. They're a little more expensive than the teaching tapes, but I know you'll know why. It's kind of funny. My oldest granddaughter, her name's Misha, and she has angel visitations and has since she was two. Well, since she can talk that we know of. So, And she's in my first book, which you'll want to buy. My favorite book. Next to the Bible, I'm sorry. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so I just wrote another book and she calls about four months ago when I was finishing it. She said, Papa, she said, you're writing another book? I said, yeah. She says, am I in the book? I said, yeah, you are. And she says, is Micah in the book? That's her brother. I said, no, he's not in this book, honey, because he wasn't in the first book either. She puts the phone down. She goes, Micah, you're not in Papa's book. You're going to have to have an encounter with God so he can write about you. You better hurry, because I'm almost done with the book. <laughs> so, anyway, we're going to have some fun. Let me just um, give a few things away. This is called Fighting for Your Place in History. And it's amazing that everybody seems like they're trying to figure out why they were born. Even atheists. I was with the atheist on a plane. He's like, I'm trying to figure out the purpose of life. I'm like, hello? How many know if you're just a big bang? Whatever, you've got to think through that. But, uh... <laughs> You know, there's two main ways to know what you're supposed to be doing with your life. The first one is, what do you love? How many of you know that we just, we just came out of a season where we believed that the, that the will of God for our life was like medicine? If it, was, if it was really good for you, it didn't taste good. But how many of you know the Bible says, Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good? How many of you, Lord, what you are passionate for, you were born to do? And the second way that you figure out what you know to do with your life, that was very articulate, is what are you afraid of? How many know the dogs of doom stand at the doors of your destiny? The children of Israel are supposed to go into where? The promised land. How many of you know what they're afraid to do? Go in the promised land. What you're supposed to do with your life, you'll be scared to death to do. That's a good word right there. How many know the dogs of doom stand at the doors of your destiny? Most people never enter into their destiny because the devil, the enemy, puts the dogs of doom there. Whenever you get close to these barking dogs, you'll know your destiny lies on the other side of that. What you're supposed to be doing, you'll be scared to death to do. That's right. That's another good word. We're already doing good. 
Jesus said, he who wants to save his life will what? Lose it. How many of you know that if you spend your life worrying about dying, you'll never really live? Until you've dealt with death, you never really live. Lots of good word. Who would like to have this? Somebody. I guess we're not going to throw. Give it to me. No. This is called All Truth is Not Created Equal. How many know the Bible is not always true? I stood at the Baptist convention and got even worse. <laughs> what did, in, the, in Luke 4, what did the devil tempt Jesus with? Isn't it amazing that he's probably plotted to kill the Christ for thousands of years, maybe millions of years, who knows? And so you, we know that when, when the devil went down to the wilderness to tempt Jesus in the, in the wilderness, how many of you know that he took his most powerful weapons to the wilderness? Yeah. He's been plotting this for, he's had lots of time to think about how to destroy the Christ. How many of you know he didn't tempt him with pornography? He didn't tempt him with murder? What did he tempt him with? The Word, the Word of God. Because the Word of God, without the Spirit of God, is death. Yes. It's called religion. Yeah. This is your brain on religion. That's a good word right there again. <laughs> Did you get that? Yeah. The spirit, the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You know, I had this dream. And in this dream, I saw words. They were like going across a screen on a ticker tape. And then this voice came from like eternity and it said I'm giving you a new operating system and as soon as he said I'm giving you a new operating system words begin to rain down like heaven you know when I say words kind of like the word power the word holy the word Jesus it was just like words they were just going across the page and then they then there's voice said I'm giving you a new operating system when he said I'm giving you a new operating system words begin to fall like like rain but the, it was kind of strange they were like it's you know how strange it is when you see something in a dream that you don't, that, how many of you ever had a spiritual experience that didn't come with words and then you try to describe it with words? Can you imagine what it'd be like to be thrust into the year 4040 and have an experience in the year 4040 and then try to explain it with today's dictionary? You imagine like a guy, imagine how a technologist, you know, technology expands before the language comes, right? So a guy invents a hard drive, but doesn't have language for it yet. Comes out of the laboratory, goes, what's that? He goes, don't know. It's a hard drive. You see what I'm getting at? It's like, do you realize how our dictionary has expanded with technology? What would it be like to be thrust in the year 4040 and have today's dictionary and try to explain 2,000 years from now experience? Well, that's what it's like when you're taken into heavenly places. What would it be like to have a dictionary 60 AD and have an experience like that with God? Be like John trying to explain what he saw. I don't know if you got that. But anyway, I had this experience with God and in this experience I saw words falling like rain, but the, the words were different sizes and they were like alive and they were like 3D. 
It's kind of hard to explain because there's nothing I've ever seen on earth exactly like that, but it was like a living PowerPoint. And, and the words were like holy, like courage, like, and, and the Lord said, I'm giving you a new operating system. And he said, if I, if I don't give you a new operating system, if I pour out new revelation on your, on your old operating system, it will be destructive instead of constructive. And I'm standing there in the dream, and I begin to breathe. Oh, this is kind of hard to explain. I begin to breathe the words in. And these words, they're, they're, they're different sizes, and they're, um, they're like, it's, it's, this is so, it's, it's all, it was almost like looking at a car, like how you could look from underneath and from the sides and from underneath the hood. And every, like I'd see the word holy, for instance, and I'd see it here, and I could see it from underneath and from beside and from uh, in, almost inside. And every, every, every perspective of the word, every time I looked at a different side of the word holy, I would have a, holy, a whole different perspective of, of the insight. And then I would breathe it in. In this dream, I would breathe in, like I'd breathe in the word courage, and suddenly I'd become courageous. And it was like every word was actually an invitation to an experience in God. Are you with me? See, some of us believe that this is the word of God. <laughs> Don't leave yet. Let me finish. I read this book every day and have for 31 years. Every day. I believe this is an inerrant word of God. I believe that this is God's word. But follow me. Before there was ever ink, before there was ever a printing press, if you took every Bible in the world, every piece of, of, of Bible literature in the world and destroyed it, you, could not, you would not destroy the word of God. Because the word of God was before the printing press ever was made. See, the Word of God is living and active. I don't know if you're getting this. And sharper than any two-edged sword. When I first went to Bethel eight years ago, nine years ago, my job, one of my jobs was to pick up the conference speakers. But I didn't know any of them. So they would give me the brochure, like, a, like the brochure of the conference speaker, and they would circle the guy I was picking up. I know this is deep. Like they'd say, you're picking up Bobby Connors. So I'd take the picture of Bobby Connors and I'd put him in the front seat. How many of you know that I don't have Bobby Connors in the front seat? See, I have a picture of Bobby Connors. And the idea is that this picture would lead me to an experience. <laughs> Sometimes I'm carrying the picture around thinking I got the experience. if you got that the problem is a lot of people get just enough of Jesus to be inoculated from the real thing Whew, that's a good word too who would like to have this come on Johnny show them what they want job. It's called Living in Graceland. I preached this one. Who was here last year? Who was not? Oh man, good thing Jesus didn't come. See, that's why I like preaching to them Baptists, because they're always saved.
I'm just joking. It's just funny. I just... It's called living in Graceland. You know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. Be like my father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Where did they hear love your neighbor, but hate your enemy? From the Bible. See, in the old covenant, your zeal for God was measured by your hatred for those who hated God. Do you realize that a king, that King Saul lost his kingship by being merciful to a king that God said, don't be merciful to? When Joshua went into the land, what was the command? Don't let anyone live. And do you realize he got in trouble for making a covenant with a tribe, with a, with a, with a city, when God said, kill everybody? See, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament attitude was more like the jihad. People who don't believe that the cross changed heaven's attitude towards earth scare me. Do you understand that a new, the New Testament is not the name of a book? It's the rights and responsibility of a new covenant. And if you don't realize that, then you come into the new country and you bring the old laws with you. That's another good word right there. We got, we got people, we got prophets prophesying against cities. When Jesus said, you're salt and light. What is salt? Salt is preservation. What is light? Revelation. What are you revealing? You're revealing the nature of God to a people. Jesus said, when the salt's lost its flavor, it's good for nothing. To be, but be trampled under the feet of men. What does he mean by that? You know that they would salt food because they didn't have refrigerators. You can imagine how much salt you'd use if you didn't have refrigerators. So they would salt, they would salt their food. Let's say they'd salt their fish. They'd reuse the salt over and over again. And what they'd do is, before they'd use it again, they would taste it. If it tasted like fish instead of like salt, they knew not to use it again because it's not going to preserve the fish. So they would take it and they would throw it out on the roads and when it rained, it would make it would create pavement. How many of you know that if you're prophesying against the people you're supposed to be preserving, you've pretty well lost your flavor? Second yeah. 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 Corinthians 5.17, come on, it says, Therefore, if any man, come on, be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things and all things become new. Now, the next verse says this. And God was in Christ. And what was he doing? Reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? Not counting their trespasses against them. How was God, how was God reconciling the world to himself? Not counting their trespasses against them. What's the next verse say? And God has given us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. As though God was begging through us, be reconciled to God. What is our ministry? The ministry of what? Reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Not counting their trespasses against them. When you use an Old Testament model to do New Testament ministry, you're bringing the old country into the new. Well, didn't they pronounce judgment in the Old Testament? Yes, because the Old Testament was, a, was the revelation of the power of sin. But the New Testament is a revelation of the power of the sin and the blood. Yes, Lord. Lots of good word right there. Who'd like to have this? 
Tell him what he won, Johnny. And lastly, this is called the Supernatural Ways of Royalty. I agree with almost everything in this book. Bill wrote two chapters. See, it's the timing of when you say something, isn't it? That makes it weird. Um, and this book is broken up into three sections. The first section is called the, our call to royalty, our royal call. How many of you know that we are not a priesthood, but we're a royal priesthood? In the Old Testament, they were a priesthood, but in the New Testament, we're a royal priesthood. Did Jesus ever pray, pray a prayer that didn't get answered? In John 17, he said this, The glory that you've given me, I want to give to them, that they might be one. Some people are trying to unify so they can get the glory, but Jesus said, I've given you the glory so you'll be attractive enough that people want to hang with you. <laughs> when you're running around telling people, I'm no good, I'm a piece of junk, no wonder no one wants to hang out with you. That's a Selah. What? You know that every time Jesus got 30 yards from his disciples, what were they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Remember the argument got so bad that James and John got their mother involved? Remember that? And it says that the rest of the disciples were what? Indignant. You know why they're indignant? They didn't think about getting their mother involved. <laughs> you know the gospel of John is the only gospel that calls John the apostle whom Jesus loved? <laughs> Do you know the gospel of John? All three of the Gospels report that J Peter and John went to the tomb. Only one Gospel reports which disciple got there first. John. All have sinned in what? Short of the what? Glory of that's whose? God's. There's the glory of man, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's the glory of the natural and the glory of the heavenly. Guess what glory you were supposed to carry. You know, when you say you're nothing, I'm a piece of junk, you're talking about the guy who made you. You were made in his image and in his likeness. You know what that means? Jesus was the model, God was the painter, and you're the artwork. Somebody once said, stupid should hurt. Stupid should be painful. And when you're walking around saying, I'm a piece of junk, that's not called humility, that's called stupid. And it should be painful. Do you know that according to Isaiah 55, 5, it says, a nation that you do not know and a nation who knows you not shall run to you. For the Lord has glorified you. Do you realize that our, our false humility is costing the nations an encounter with God? That's a good word right there. I haven't started preaching it. This is a commercial. So the first section of the book is, called, is, is our royal call. The second section of the book is called the attributes of royalty. 
It's like, how do noble people behave? Have you ever thought of that? Like, how do noble people behave? What's the difference between noble people and common people? How, what, are, what are the attributes that, that kings and princes are supposed to hold close to them? The second section of the book is, how does royalty behave? What, what are the attributes that you're to hold high? You're a royal priesthood. You know, Jesus said, he said, all authority has been given to me, where? And? How many know, in heaven is not a revelation to the people he was talking to. They got that. But when he said on earth, that would have been a paradigm shift. Because, he said, therefore, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because of that, therefore, make disciples what? Of all nations. But we've reduced that to make disciples in all nations. Because you will always reduce the call of God to your identity. If we're not discipling nations, who is? Remember what Paul said to the church in Ephesus uh, at Miletus? When he was leaving, he was going, he said, he says, I'm going to be leaving and savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even among yourselves will men rise up and draw men after them. What happens in the absence of true authority? That's another good word right there. Yeah. And the last section of the book is called the responsibility, the responsibility and authority of royalty. How many of you know you just can't hang around polishing your crown? You can always tell how close you are to the throne by how you respond to injustice. The Lord asked me a question years ago. In fact, the book begins with it. The Lord said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house, you know? How many of you have ever read that story or you've seen the movie? <laughs> Remember they were killing all the firstborn males and Moses gets put in the, in the river and the daughter, Pharaoh's daughter. The Lord said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? I said, no. He said, because a man who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. You can always tell. Do you know why Moses, when he saw his brothers being mistreated, thought that it was his responsibility to do something about it? Because he was raised by a king. I don't know if you got that. He was raised by a king. And what is a king's mentality? Anything that's happening in the kingdom is my responsibility. If the things that are going wrong in your city are not your responsibility, then we've figured out the problem. I was in Mexico, and I asked the Mexicans, who are really good. I love the Mexican people. Anyone else love the Mexican people? I love the Mexican people, and they're really close friends of mine, and, and we, have, we have two schools, in, uh, supernatural schools in Mexico, and, and a, we have a church there. I asked the Mexican people. I had about 100 leaders together, and I asked the Mexican people. I said, do you realize that we're building a 700-mile-long wall to keep the Mexicans in their country? Does it bother you that the people who have ambition in your country are trying to leave your country? Or is the fact that it doesn't bother you the real problem? I asked them, I said, does it bother you that when a Mexican leaves your country that they, that they, they no longer call themselves Mexicans? I mean, the French, the people from France call themselves French. People from Spain call themselves Spanish. But when a Mexican leaves your country, they don't want to be called Mexican. I'm a Latino. I'm Spanish. 
And they all looked at me. I said, does, it, does that bother you or is the fact that it doesn't bother you the reason why it should, it's happening? Because God said, make disciples of your nation. And I commissioned him. I said, this is, one, this, is your, this is part of your commission, that you would restore national pride to your country. Yes, Lord. I don't know if you're getting this. Yes. Yeah. If the problems of society aren't our problem, then that is the problem. Wow. Hmm. That's a good word. Who would like to have this? you did, but whatever you did, you got popular doing it, Todd. By the way, Todd's single, and we don't think he should remain like that. Any single women in this church? Would you please stand? Come on, man. It's one of our jobs. Get our sons and daughters married off. Singles, just wrong. I'm just joking. That's not true. It's not even in the Bible, hardly. Well, let's pray and see if we can share something with you. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing with these people. Lord, I just pray you'd mess them up. We thank you that Bill got them all fixed. Lord, we just pray that you would release a revelatory anointing on this room. Lord, we pray for that. We pray that we would have a photosynthesis, that we would be enlightened, that we'd have a photosynthesis with God. Lord, that you would begin to reveal yourself to us in a way that we've never seen before. That there would be dimensions to truth. We'd see it from all perspectives and we'd begin to experience truth. In Jesus' name. You know, um, about, I've been really excited for this morning because I feel like the Lord told me that I was to speak on apostles. And he's, uh, I've really not, I've really hardly spoke on that for a couple of years because I feel like the Lord told me to set the subject aside. And so about a month ago, the Lord said, pick it up again and start sharing about it. And, uh, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about apostleships and what that is. Um, you know, Jesus said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins, at least the wineskin rip. How many know that the Lord's presence, the Lord wants his presence to be constructive and not destructive? Yeah. And how many realize that there are dimensions to God's presence? For instance, for instance, God is everywhere. Uh, we're learning that, the, that in the very material world that they're finding, you know, smaller and smaller particles. You know, some of you that are into science uh, know this. I, 
I, um, I love science. I don't know much about it. I've just been reading a bunch of books. A year ago, the Lord told me to study science, which it's pretty hard when you don't even understand the language. How many of you ever read a book where you understand about one-tenth of it? Because the language, is, just the language is different. But there's something in, in matter that's called a photon. Now, not to be confused with a proton. A photon is a particle of light. And what they found at this point is that scientists have discovered just recently, I guess in the last five to ten years, that all matter is made up of light. It's, it's amazing because you'll notice in Genesis 1 that God created light before he created the sun and the moon. Yeah. Just like God to create light before he creates the sun. And so we, we know that, you know... Uh, the Hebrew says that God holds everything together by the word of his power. So we know that on one hand, if God was to, if God was to evacuate the earth, that the earth would just, it would blow into a billion pieces because God's presence, his very presence holds matter together. So in that sense, you know, you know, it's, you know I'm not saying that God's in the tree, but God's in the tree. I'm not talking to my wife though. So, well, she talks to trees. They talk back, too. They have a relationship and all. I, I, like, I like plastic trees. She says they're false prophets. She says they have a form of godliness but deny its power. There's another level of God's presence when he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So we know that as believers, God is always with us. So he's not just with us in the core of our of our material makeup, but he's actually with us in this in the personal presence, in his personal presence that he is always with us. Everybody agree. And then Jesus makes another profound statement. He said, if two or three of you gather together in my name, I will be there. Well, wait a second, you said you're already here. But how many of you know there's another dimension to God's presence when we gather and we begin to agree? And how many of you know he said, if two or three of you agree? He's not talking about us agreeing with each other. He's talking about us agreeing with heaven. Because the word there is symphonia, and it means he's the conductor. When God begins to conduct a meeting and we all agree with God, there's power released and the presence of God comes in a way that we don't have with, without that agreement with heaven in, in, uh, in two or three. Does everybody agree with that? that? That Jesus is talking about that there's another dimension to his presence when we gather because we agree. But then Jesus makes another statement. He said, I only pour new wine into new wineskins. Least the wineskin rip and the wine be lost. How many of you know that we're talking about another level of the presence of God? We're talking about, why does Jesus use the word wine? Because wine, if you drink enough wine, it, you, you, be, you begin to not act yourself, you begin to act outside of yourself. And God wants to pour his presence out in a way that he begins to intoxicate you with his presence and his love. So that you behave, not as you behave, but as he behaves. You know, it's amazing to me, this is a little off the subject, but Jesus took water and he made it wine, but the churches made it grape juice. I want you to think about that. Religion does not want you to have any chance for you to make a mistake. 
How many of you know God did not childproof the garden? God is not trying to keep you safe. He's trying to keep you from a meaningless life. That's a good word right there. You know, pastors, I want to talk to you for a minute. If you spend your life trying to keep your people safe for two hours while they come to your church, I don't know what you think they're doing when they leave. (laughs) Well, things need to be done decently in order. Well, they need to be done. You don't have to worry about organizing something that ain't happening. (laughs) In most churches, if Jesus didn't show up, nobody would ever know because we never do anything that requires Him. Most pastors like geldings, but they don't like stallions. But geldings can't reproduce. I mean, that's beyond circumcision. Never said that before. I can feel my wife. She's in the front row going. Jesus said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Okay, so my question is this. Do we want to go to the next level? Do we, want to, do we want to find a place where the intoxicating presence of God begins to fill our lives so that we begin to act not as ourselves but as God is? Yeah. Do you realize that you were so created in God's image that, that Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, imitate God? What are you doing? I'm acting like God. Why? Because I'm trying to be myself. Am I saying you're God? No, I'm not saying you're God. I'm just saying you're supposed to act like God because God is in you. Jesus said this to, in John uh, something. I can't even remember where. It's John. I think it's 14, but I could be wrong. He's the, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know where I'm going. Thomas goes, I doubt it. Lord, we don't know where you're going. But show us the Father and it'll be enough. Jesus goes, have I been with you so long and you've not known the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, how many of you know that Jesus wasn't saying he was the Father? When he got baptized and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased, how many know Jesus wasn't talking to himself? That's a revelation for some of you. <laughs> Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, he isn't saying he's the Father. He clarifies in John 17. He said, Father, you're in me and I'm in you. Now, get the next point he makes. I want you to be in them. 
I want us to be in them and them to be in us. Listen to this. The same way, in the same way that you're in me and I'm in you. Now, he just told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Then he prays, Father, I'd like you to be in me and I be in them just the way that you and I. Do you know when he's talking about unity there, that we might be one? Do you understand he's not talking about us getting along? Look at the emphasis. When he's talking about that we might be one, he's not talking about us getting along. Listen, he couldn't even get 12 guys to get along. I guess that would be greater works. Because the harvest is plentiful, but so are the laborers now. So there is another level. But when Jesus prayed that we would be one, he, look at the emphasis. It's not that we would be one. It's that we would be one. That the, the unity, he's talking about that, that divinity and humanity would merge. That's how people would know that there's a God. That divinity and humanity would merge. That's why in 1 Peter 2 he says, Do you not realize that you've received the divine nature? That's a good word right there. Are you alright? Now, everybody just to make sure what I'm about to say, I just want to make it really clear. I don't believe that I'm God. I don't believe I'm a God. But I believe that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I was made in His image and in His likeness. And I'm an open heaven. The Father lives inside of me. And if you come in contact with me and you don't know the Father, if you come in contact with me and you haven't seen the Father, then it's because you don't have a spirit of revelation on you. Because here's the Father inside of me in a different form. I'm not a Mormon. I'm not saying I'm God. I'm just saying I'm His house. And if you come here, you've come to visit the Father. Please keep that in the right context because any of those sentences outside of what I said, I would not agree with and would be complete heresy. But that's why you do miracles and greater works. Because it's a demonstration of the divinity that lives inside of you. Huh. That's another good word right there. Jesus said, I don't pour out new wine in old wineskins, at least the wineskin rip. I pour out new wine in new wineskins. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be important if Jesus pours out the intoxicating presence, the, the highest level of his presence into new wineskins, it'd be kind of important to know what the wineskin is. Because I believe if we build it, he will come. What is a new wineskin? Well, let me just fast forward a little bit. Do you know that oftentimes the, gospel, the gospels will tell the same story like three times, like three different gospels will carry the same story. But how many times does the gospel carry the same story with a different pretext? It's it's probably like Jesus had some core messages that he preached in different places in different locations, right? But this this these verses 
No one pours out new wine on old wineskins. The pretext is always the same. It's in three Gospels, and all three Gospels begin with this. The Pharisees and John's disciples came to him and said, Why do you and your disciples not fast when we fast? Get it? That's that's always the pretext. And Jesus said, Why should my disciples fast when they have the bridegroom with them? But they will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from him, them. For no, for no one pours new wine into old wineskins, lest the wineskin rip and the wine be lost. What's he saying to John and to the Pharisees? He's saying, they have what you're fasting for, my presence. All right. Good. And he's saying, when I leave, they'll fast. Why? Because they're looking for what? What do you fast for? The intoxicating presence of God. Okay, but what is the wineskin? This is what I believe. I believe that the wineskin that the Holy Spirit pours his wine into is the government of God. I believe he's saying to the Pharisees, you have a government, you have a leadership. John has a leadership, but you're old wineskins, and that's why the intoxicating presence doesn't fall on you guys, because you are an old government that constricts the presence of God and keeps you from being intoxicated by God. Okay, you want me to prove it? Unbelieving generation, you seek for a sign. (laughs) Acts 1, why don't you turn there? Are you guys okay? Are Are you bored? Or I mean, you could be home watching cartoons right now. Acts 1, Jesus said, uh, in verse 14, all these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. You know, Jesus told them to wait for what uh, the Father promised, and so they're waiting. Uh, Along with Mary, all these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and and his brothers. At this time, Peter stood in the midst of them and said, brethren, gathering about... 120 persons, and he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested, who arrested Jesus. Now, let me just give you a little insight. We have, one, we have Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells them to wait for what the Father promised. Then we have Acts 1.14, where they're waiting together and they're praying. And then we have Acts 2.1, where the Holy Spirit falls on them. Would everyone agree that Acts 2.1 is the first, is the first real place in the scripture where we see the intoxicating presence actually resting on people? What I'm getting at is that the first time something happens in the Bible sets a precedence for everything else. So I'm going, okay, if Jesus says that the new wine is poured out, and if the, if the new wine is, represents the intoxicating presence of God, then when is the first time the, that we see people intoxicated by God? That'd be important to know what preceded that. Like, what happened before that that, that drew the intoxicating presence of God? Are you see where I'm going? So I've, I've heard for years, and I've heard it preached, that what, what caused the intoxicating presence of God in Acts 2 is that they had this prayer meeting where they were all of one mind. And I want to propose to you that that's not true. That the, that the, pre, that the, that the prayer meeting did was a a prelude to it but that what actually happened 
in the, in the second part of Acts 1 is actually what drew the intoxicating presence. And I can prove it to you in the scripture because they had lots of other prayer meetings that did not have the intoxicating presence of God. But this particular prayer meeting did. What did they do? Well, Peter stands up in the middle of the prayer meeting and he goes, listen, listen, I remember something. And he begins to remind them of a verse. How many of you know that suddenly the Lord highlights a verse that says that there will be a traitor and that, in fact, maybe it would just be easier to read it. And Peter goes on to talk about, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested. So he goes, they put forth, so the two, uh, verse 23, they put forth two men, Joseph and, um, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. Show us which one of these you've chosen to occupy this ministry. Um, and this apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own way, they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the leaven. Now follow me for a minute. The next verse, after they chose, after they replaced Judas with Matthias, what happened? The next verse. Because remember, there wasn't chapters and verses. The next thing that happened is the Holy Spirit's intoxicating presence fell. I want to propose to you that when they replaced Judas with Matthias, that the wineskin was repaired and that the wine fell. In the New Jerusalem, how many gates are there? Twelve. How many foundation stones are there? Twelve. What is on the name of the foundation stones of those gates? Twelve names of what? Twelve apostles. When Judas fell, how many gates were guarded? Eleven. What is that? A rip in the wineskin. Do you remember the Twin Towers? What day did it happen? Nine. The number of gifts. Eleven. What plane hit it first? Number eleven. Flight eleven. What are the Twin Towers? Apostles and prophets. What happens when you have one gate unguarded? I don't know if you're getting all this. I believe that the government God is the wineskin of God that draws the intoxicating presence of God. Did you understand I said the intoxicating presence? And I just explained to you that there are levels of God's presence. But the intoxicating presence of God needs to be governed by the, people, by the, by the leaders of God. And if it isn't, it becomes cons- destructive instead of constructive. You don't have to agree, but you could be wrong. I believe in absolutes, and you have a right to my opinion. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm not kidding that I'm right. I believe that we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. I was laying on the floor eight and a half years ago when we, the first month we came to Bethel and Kathy and I were living in a little apartment and I used to just go in the, in our spare bedroom and lay on the floor um, before, before work and just pray. And one day I'm laying there, it's maybe a month or two after we were at Bethel and the Lord said to me, 
we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Ask me what that means. I don't know if the Lord talks to you like this. He talks to me in like pop quizzes. I shared that in a leaders meeting the other day and someone in the front row said something profound because the Lord oftentimes uh, talks to me in questions. This is true. This is just a side note. I've never even understood why, but he oftentimes, I I would say a third of the time the Lord talks to me in questions. He'll say, ask me what this means or did you know such and such and ask me why. Uh And so I was was just sharing that. I said, well, I don't know why. And someone in the front row whispered to me because he's trying to teach you how to think, not just what to think. Do you know that we're no longer slaves, but friends? John 15. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves. Listen, why? Why, why doesn't he call you slaves? Because a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things I've what? Heard from the Father I've made known to you. People are like, how do you guys get all this revelation? I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, how do you guys get all this revelation? You know, you, you have this prayer life, you have this, you know, you spend hours and, and you read a lot, and I'm like, no. No, those things aren't true. I pray every day. I read my Bible. And I thought of something one day. But I have a different core relationship with God than lots of people do. Because Jesus said, slaves don't know what the master's doing, but everything that the father's does he's made known to us so friendship creates a culture for revelation genesis 1 18 no genesis chapter 18 god's talking to abraham who's called the friend of god and god says should i hide to abraham what i'm about to do since abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him in other words, God said, should I hide from you what I'm doing in the earth because you're my friend? Anyway. There's another good word right there. I forget what I was talking about, though. Oh, God said, I was laying on the floor, and God said, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships, asking what that means. I said, what does that mean? And God says, and denomination means divided nations. How many you know we're Protestants? The word Protestant comes from the word protester. Selah. And the Lord said, in denominationalism, people, people gather around truth. They divide, they divide around what they believe. Are you following me? But he said, in apostleships, people gather around fathers. And this is what he said. He said, I'm about to pour out new revelation. He said, I'm about to open the vaults of heaven and reveal the secrets of my nature and my character. I'm about to unveil my glory in a way that I have kept secret for the eons of ages, locked in a vault for the eons of ages. I have not even revealed this to the angels of God, he told me. And I'm about to unlock, he said, I'm about to unlock the vaults of heaven and reveal my glory in a way that no one's ever seen before. But this is what he said. If I reveal, if I give new revelation on the old wineskin that people gather because they agree, he said, I will destroy the wineskin. Think about it. If you have a revelation, the first day that you have a revelation, you've, we've believed this and now you believe this. 
And for at least for one day, we don't agree. In other words, the very context of our relationship. You, you guys know, you've been watching that goofy thing with Anna Nicole. <laughs> Me neither. But I don't know how you're not. It's, on, it's been on the news for two months. It's like, get a life. But she marries. Remember this? She marries this real old, what is he, like 80 or something, 78 years old. But he's a what, multimillionaire or a billionaire? And everyone's like, I wonder why she married him. I don't know. What's the point? Everyone wonders what the context of their covenant is. Follow me. Why are they together? Do you see... The reason why they're together is as, is, is as meaningful as who's together. Why do people go to church? Well, that's a really good question. How do you have church growth without asking yourself why people come? Are you with me? Why do people gather? Well, in denominationalism, they gather because they agree. Right? But in apostleships, they go, I hear the shepherd's voice in, the, in, in those leaders. Those are my shepherds. And they gather not because they agree, but they gather because they, see the, they hear the Father's voice in certain people. Are you with me? And they go, this is my tribe. Follow me. In denominationalism... How do you get authority in denominationalism? Listen, I'm not talking about denomination. I'm talking about the ism. I don't care what's over your door. I just care what's over your heart. Are you with me? So in denominationalism, how do you get authority? You go to, you, you go to seminary and you get a degree. You get a, right? So you go, I got a degree, therefore I are a pastor. What's the problem with that? You got authority through performing. You got to get this. You have performance-based authority. You went, you did something, you performed for something, you got a certificate, and now you are qualified. You qualified by performing. What's the problem with that? You got gift, you got gift-derived authority, which means that the most gifted person in the room got to be in charge. What's the problem with that? Well, listen, what is the core reason why we gather? Because that's going to make a big difference on how we develop. If, the most, if, the, if I got authority through performing, guess what happens to anyone who outperforms me when I'm the leader? I don't know if you got that. Yeah. See, if the, most, if the most qualified person is leading because they're the most qualified, then what do I have to do with somebody who outgrows me? I have to sabotage their growth because I got this place because I'm the most qualified. But in an apostleship, it isn't what I know, but who I know. How does, in apostleships, how do leaders become leaders in an apostleship? The elders lay hands on, the apostles lay hands on them and they install them into their ministry. How many of you know that you can't, it doesn't matter if you know more than me, if you're more educated, if you can perform better, you, because you didn't put me here, God did. <laughs> in 
Malachi 4 uh, says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great for the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. You know, I don't believe that that verse is talking just about the family unit. I think it's talking about the family of God. And I want you, I want you to notice that it says, in the last days, the prophet Elijah will come. What is the prophetic movement going to look like in the last days? What was the prophetic movement in Elijah's day look like? They prophesied against kings. They prophesied against countries. But Elijah says this, in the last days, they'll not be prophesying against kings. They'll not be prophesying against countries. They'll be, they'll be affecting, they'll be procreating the family and they'll be restoring hearts of fathers to sons, hearts of sons to fathers. And the prophetic movement in the last day is going to usher in this fatherly movement that the apostolic call is going to come out of. I believe that, that, the, that apostleships are about fathers. I'm not talking about the gender. I'm not talking about how many of you know if we can be the bride of Christ, yeah. Yeah. then women can be fathers in the house of God. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. The Lord told me this when I was laying on the floor. He said, denominationalism is like concubines. You know what a concubine is? You know that the kings, oftentimes, they would have many wives and many concubines. Do you know what the difference between a wife and a concubine was? The concubine did not carry the king's name, and none of her children had an inheritance. I don't know if you got that. And the Lord said, denomination, denominationalism, is concubines. Do you know that God... That they, the kings were not supposed to have concubines? But do you know that God never... You know, God spoke to David about his adulterous relationship, for instance, but he never talked to him about his concubines. I'm just saying God tolerates some things, but doesn't celebrate it. Denominationalism. What is denominationalism? What happens when you, when you raise up... If you raise up children, but they have no father, they have no inheritance, they have no name, what do you call them? Well, first, uh, Hebrews 12 calls them bastards. That's a bad word. <laughs> you guys are so serious here, so it's like, I gotta like break you in. It's in the King James Bible, by the way, but it ought to be a cuss word. Because to live without having a father should be a bad word. As a matter of fact, Malachi 4 says it's a curse, so it ought to be a curse word. And by the way, I was born illegitimately. My mother got prayed with me in high school, 1955. 
So, thank God that he adopts. You know, Jesus, at the last, at the last supper, you know, the, the going away party of Jesus, he says to his disciples, one of you betray me. One of the scariest verses in the Bible is when the disciples said, is it me? Remember that? I mean, here's the guy, he's been with these guys three and a half years, and Jesus turns to his 12 guys They've been living together. They've been sleeping next to each other. They've been ministering together. They've been to hell and back together. They've been to heaven and back together. They've cast out demons. They've raised the dead. I mean, they've been chased from city to city. I mean, this isn't like we've been together on Sunday morning. And Jesus turns to them and he says, one of you betray me. And the scariest words in the Bible, they say, who is it, Lord? How many of you know, you know, Peter turns to John, who's sitting next to Jesus, at least according to the gospel of John. You notice we don't ever know who's sitting on the other side of Jesus? It's an interesting dynamic, if you ask me. And Peter says to John, ask him if it's me. Did you notice that that John does not ask Jesus if it's Peter? He says to Jesus, is it me? How many of you know that if Judas couldn't do signs and wonders, like every time they pray for the sick, but Judas had to go to the bathroom? And Jesus said, one of you betray me. They go, it's got to be Judas. He's always got to go potty every time we're moving in signs and wonders. How many of you are with me? You know people like that. Anyway, but uh, Jesus said, one of you betray me. And they said, they don't know who it was. Until Jesus says this, let's make a covenant. When Jesus says, let's make a covenant, Judas says, time for me to get out of here. You know why? How did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. Why? Because the Judas spirit always wants intimacy without covenant. Do you understand that it isn't the Jezebel spirit that is killing the church? She's laying on a sickbed, according to the book of Revelation. He gave her a chance to repent, and she's sick. But you know what's killing the church and our world? The Judas spirit. It's called cohabiting. And it's in the church. It's in denominationalism. People don't come to church, they become the church. But in denominationalism, they only come to church. In denominationalism, you're in it for what you can get out of it. I'm in this marriage. You know why you ask people what, that are cohabiting, why don't you get married? They go, oh, it's just a piece of paper. If it's a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. Because the core reason why you're together is so that you can get something. And I don't want to sign it because insecurity is the way I keep you in the relationship. See, the reason why I don't sign a piece of paper when I'm living with you, the reason I don't want to get married, even though we've been together for eight years and we've got 25 children together, 
The reason why I can't bring myself to marry you is because I want insecurity to be in you because I want you to think if you don't treat me well, I'm leaving because I'm in this relationship where I can get. But in marriage, I'm in a covenant. I'm not in a relationship for what I can get. I'm in a relationship for what I can give. All right, yeah. You're clapping, but half of you go to church. Half of you are clapping, go to church for what you can get. You're not contributors, you're consumers. And you're there to critique the sermon and figure out what you can get. And when you don't like something, you're out of there. And you put your kids in the nursery for 48 years. But when someone asks you to work in the nursery, you're busy. Because you're there to get what you can get. And when someone says, when someone takes an offering, you're trying to figure out if they're trying to get your money. An idol is something you turn to in a time of need and something you have to check with before you obey God. An idol is something you turn to in a time of need and something you check with before you obey God. It's funny to me, this is off the subject, but I have people come to me... Every so often they say, I don't believe in tithing. I don't care if they don't believe in tithing, except for every person who's ever argued that is trying to give less. In the book of Acts, what did they do? They sold their property, had everything in common, and they said that nothing that they owned was their own. I've never had somebody come and say, I don't believe in tithing. I think that everything I have is the body of Christ. Just take it. I don't know if you got all that. Do you know that in, I call it apostolic giving. When in the, in the, in the new, in the book of Acts, they sold everything and they lived communally, right? They lived communally, not because they were in a commune, but because people, they, they were born and they died five miles from when they were born. They didn't have cars and trains and planes, right? Basically your neighborhood pretty much dictated what you were going to be because of travel. I mean, I know there's some exceptions, but culturally. And so they, they see that there's need, and they sell their stuff to make the, meet the need. But what's really interesting, did you ever notice that they don't give it to the need? Who do they give it to? The apostles. They laid the money at the what? Apostles' feet. Why? Because they thought, somebody probably knows where this money needs to be given more than I do. How many know in apostleships you trust someone more than you trust yourself? Yeah. Well, have you ever heard of the shepherding movement? How about... How about Jones. I mean, how many know that the whole Kool-Aid deal has been like way overused? I don't even like Kool-Aid. You know Jim Jones? Yeah. Whatever. Okay. The church has become a global orphanage. I don't know if you got that. The church has become a global orphanage. We're so concerned that someone's going to control us that we don't, that we stay independent instead of interdependent. You know what bothers me a little bit? People will go to work for somebody who has, doesn't know God at all. They'll go to work for a complete sinner 
and they'll do what he set, tells them to do for money. But they'll come to church, and their pastor says, you know, I'd like us to fast this week. And it's like, who does he think he is telling me what to do? <laughs> you guys are getting really quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I made you laugh, and I stopped you. <laughs> There's something wrong when we'll do for money what we won't do for God. Yes. I've never had anybody say, you know, I don't know who that boss thinks he is. Has he ever heard of the shepherding movement? <laughs> Just trying to control my life. Tells me what time to come to work. Tells me what to do all day. Tells me when I can go home. Tells me I can only have seven days of vacation. He's controlling my life. Has he ever heard of the shepherding movement? <laughs> I don't know if you're getting all that. Do people abuse authority? Of course they do. Is there bad families? Of course there is. Does that mean marriage is wrong? No. Some of you hesitated. (laughs) I want to end with a story. When um, I was growing up, my father drowned when I was three years old, and I, I had two stepfathers who didn't like me. My fathers basically said, you're the trash that came with the treasure. Your job is to be seen and not heard. Stay out of my way. You are not valuable. But out of my mother's first, my, my mother's second marriage, my first stepfather, my brother was born. His name's Kelly. And my, my mother... Um, that was a really a seriously abusive situation and I don't want to tell you the whole story but it was just about as bad as it gets and so my mother uh, divorced my first stepfather at eight years later and I was uh, 13 and my, he had visiting rights he was able to visit my brother once a month and so he would call he would call my, my little brother who was at the time about four he would call, and he would say, I'm going to pick up Kelly. Have him ready at 5.30. So Kelly, he'd be, he'd be really excited. He had a little, one of those little Superman suitcases. He'd be really excited, and about two hours early, he'd go put it out on the front porch, and he'd sit on it, and he'd wait. And 5 o'clock would come, and 5.30, and he was so excited. And 6 o'clock would come. And 6.30 would come, and 7 would come, and 7.30 would come, and 8 o'clock would come, and 8.30 would come, and finally I would go outside, and I'd say, you know, your dad probably got, you know, something happened, he probably's not going to be able to make it. He said, my dad's coming, I know he's coming. And he'd sit on that little suitcase until he finally fall asleep late at night, and I would pick him up his little suitcase and I would carry him to bed and I did that month after month how many know that children are supposed to be born out of yada a loving husband and a loving wife children are supposed to be the fruit of a loving relationship 
And when children are born out of love and not lust, they become letters that we send to one another. Every time my child walks in the house, every time I see my child, I'm remembered of my love for my wife because my child was born conceived out of love. And so they become a letter written in their hearts. But what happens when they're born out of lust instead of love? You know, we tell them God loves them and we practice our lines really well. The preachers practice his lines. We have the music going. We get them to come up front and we promise them the world, but we never show up. That's not called the church. Jesus never said make Christians. He said make disciples. I got saved in 1973. I had never been in a church in my life with the exception of going to a wedding. My grandfather, who was our patriarch, was an atheist. By the way, he got saved two years before, a year before he died. And that's another... But... I had a visitation from God when I was 15. How many of you got saved in the Jesus movement? My mother was sick. She had psoriasis all over her head. This is, she had just divorced my first stepfather. We had a prowler for a year. He was trying to break in to our house. He broke into our house several times. Mother, I took a shot at him. My mother slept with a shotgun and she had psoriasis all over her body. I was scared to death, the oldest in our family. And I said to God one day, I said, if there's a God, if you heal my mother, I'll find out who you are and I'll serve you the rest of my life. A voice came three o'clock in the morning on a summer night. He said, my name is Jesus Christ, and you have what you requested. Audible voice. The next morning, my mother was completely well. A week later, the same voice came back. Only two times I've ever heard the audible voice of God in my whole life, including to, to this day. He said, my name is Jesus Christ. You said, if I'd heal your mother, that you'd serve me, and I'm waiting. So I began to search for God. And the only thing I knew, I'd never read the Bible. I had never been in church. I just knew that his name was Jesus Christ. It wasn't Buddha. It wasn't Muhammad. I didn't know. And I began to go to church to church. And I'd stand in the back of the church. And I would, I didn't know what I was looking for. But I just figured whoever spoke to me would talk to me again. And I would go from church to church. And I'd stand in the back of the church. Sometimes I'd stand through the whole service. Sometimes I would stay a few minutes and leave. But I was on a quest to find God. One day, Kathy and I, we went to this little youth group. It wasn't little. It was about 100 kids. They were all ex-drug addicts. I didn't even know there was a Jesus movement. We went to this house. A friend of mine invited me to this house. We went to this house, and we were crammed in the front room. All these kids, literally up the stairs. And if you got there late, you had to listen from the bedrooms. And they play, played some songs, you know. We sang Kumbaya. <laughs> sing Hallelujah to the Lord. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I went the first time with Kathy. And we were just kids. And the, and the young preacher who was playing a guitar, a young skinny guy named Ken Hughes, he got, 
got done with worship, he said, does anyone want to receive Jesus? I said, Mom, I'm waiting not for that for three years. And I raised my hand, and he led us in a prayer like we often do. And then when the whole thing was over that night, he came to, to Kathy and I, and he said, you receive Jesus, and you're like a little baby. And he began to explain in really simple terms what it meant to be born again. And he said, you need a daddy. Well, I knew I needed a daddy because I'd never had a daddy my whole life. And he brought three young men in front of me that were about three or four years older than me. And he said, what, what, which one of these men do you want to be your father? 